this main valve controls the heat for all of tier 7. Great! I'll just turn this sucker off! Oh yeah, no, I knew that. It's alright. There's so much new information for you to assimilate. Sometimes the smaller things will elude you. Well, at least you get that. The others treat me like I'm some kind of Earth idiot. Well, granted, they're not the most patient beings, but what did you expect? Uh, I don't know. A little slack, maybe? At least they know where they are, how things work. It takes me ten minutes to figure out how to open the door. You'll need to develop some patience yourself if you expect to survive here. I'm trying. I am trying. But, you know, with Aaron and Dargo, it's like everything is a test. It's like I'm in some never-ending frat hazing at Alien U. Frat? Hazing? Next planet, I'll rent you a copy of Animal House. Welcome to Welcome to the Uncharted Territories. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And we're here to talk about Ascape. Yeah, okay. This is one of those things, it totally did not occur to me until you pointed it out, but director Brian Henson sure does love featuring Ben Browder's ass in this episode. Yeah, this episode's a good 40% ass. There's a lot of ass in this episode. It's like a Quentin Tarantino movie where you don't notice the foot thing until someone points it out and then you can't stop seeing it. Yeah, yeah. This is the third episode of Farscape as far as airing order goes, Exodus from Genesis. And this episode was directed by none other than Brian Henson. Hmm. Son of Jim Henson? Son of Jim Henson, and also director of Muppet Christmas Carol Ooh. and Muppet Treasure Island. Hmm. And... That adult Muppet movie that was on the shelf until, like, last year. Oh, the Happy Time Murders or Smile Time Murders or... Yeah, that one. Well, every ten years or so, someone's like, hey, you know what's a good idea? We should have an adult-oriented puppet thing. Okay, so as a teenager, I was obsessed with Meet the Feebles, Hmm. but I'm kind of afraid to rewatch it because I think I might just be like, oh, no. Okay, so Meet the Feebles was the 80s. Uh Uh-huh. Greg the Bunny was the 90s. Avenue Q was the 2000s, even though that was a musical, not a TV show or movie. Yeah, which I love Avenue Q, but parts of it have aged very poorly. And was there anything between Avenue Q and the Happy Town Murders? I don't think so. Which, I love Melissa McCarthy, but some of the movies she chooses to be in are just... Well, remember, that one sat on the shelf for a while, so I don't know how much pull she had when she was in that. Hmm. I mean, neither of us saw it, so, I mean, maybe it was secretly brilliant. Yeah, it could be one of those movies where people revisit it five years from now and are like, oh, I don't know why everyone was so uh, down on this. Like, you know how the prequels went through that weird cyclical thing where everyone loved them when they first came out, and then everyone was like, no, they're, they're, wait, these might not be good, and then it was, oh, no, these are the worst things ever. I think this is our age difference, because no one I know loved them when they first came out. Yeah, but uh, we kept seeing them all. Yeah. We were like, no, the next one will be better. Well, people have been less cruel to them recently, although that might just be because of the horrible things that the guy who played Charger Banks and Baby Anakin went through. Yeah, I mean, there was no reason to be mean to the individual people other than George Lucas, who, look, his crime is that he is not good at story structure. He only creates movies because he likes the editing process, which is fine. But, like, don't let him write them. Well, I I think it's been said before, everything that you like about the original Star Wars movies is, you know, was done by either his wife or the actors. Yes, that's absolutely true. 
Now, speaking of writers, this episode was written by Ro Hume. And I just want to bring this up because it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. She's the only credited writer on this episode. Oh, another female writer. Yeah. Uh-huh. And apparently, according to Rockney O'Bannon and David Kemper, who are the creator and producer of this show, they weren't happy with her script and did massive rewrites on it. But mm. I don't know how much of that is true and how much of that is them because she, as I said, is the only credited writer. And interestingly, I don't know what this means, but she never wrote another episode of Farscape. She's credited as a story by on another episode, and she's credited as executive consultant on several of the best episodes, um, especially uh, in the early seasons. So uh, PK Tech Girl, DNA Mad Scientist, Rhapsody in Blue. Rhapsody in Blue is also the one where she has a story credit. Hmm. So... I don't know what her deal is. I just find this very interesting that apparently they didn't like her as a writer, but she has at least fingerprints in some of the best episodes. And as I said, is the only credited writer on this episode. And the Writers Guild is very precise about who is credited on episodes. I was about to say, I I feel like it's weird that the Writers Guild didn't have more to say about her being the only credited writer if there were massive rewrites on this episode. Yeah. Although, Maybe it's different in Australia? I don't know. Although there's a creator I really like. Uh, God, I might be saying her name wrong. Hannah Blumenrich. If you've seen those really fun Spider-Man in high school uh, fan comics that have been going around the internet for a while, that's her. Oh yeah, love those. Yeah, she uh, she recently did some writing on a Big Hero 6 comic. And by recently, I mean she did it like almost a year ago or over a year ago and it just came out now. And she was really mad that they have her name, like, big and up, and they changed huge parts of her script. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, comics writers don't have the same kind of union, or any union, as TV and film writers. So, I mean, they could just, depending on what her contract says, they could rewrite everything and keep her name on it. Which is one of the reasons I'm trying to be, on Twitter and stuff, less hard on writers who do stories I'm not a huge fan of. Well, I mean, that's the thing about comics. There's so much out, especially when you're not writing, you know, an independent creator-owned book. If you're writing as part of, one, um, for one of the big two, you're you're basically under a lot of creative constraints. Like, I, I, I feel like I've been on the record as not liking Secret Empire. I, I think it was bad from the get-go. Ugh. But the thing is, I, like, I've read a lot of Nick Spencer stuff in the past and liked it. And I'm like, this is the first big event he was on and not a weird side book. So I'm wondering if there was editorial stuff or... Well, I mean, one of the biggest problems with Secret Empire isn't so much the storyline where they made Cap a Nazi, hmm. but everybody coming out and being like, oh no, this is 100% permanent. Like, this is our first comic rodeo. Okay, yeah, that always honks me off. Like... I didn't have any issues with the Superior Spider-Man plotline, the one where Doc Ock switches bodies with Spider-Man and then uh, kills Spider-Man and his body. Uh-huh. I didn't have any issues with that plot. It's the fact that there, that Dan Slott was on Twitter all the time, like, oh no, this is the new status quo, this is going to be forever. And the fact that afterwards people are like, oh, everyone was throwing temper tantrums because they thought it was the new forever thing. I'm like, no. We all know how comics work. We Why know... are you insulting our intelligence? 
well, we know that none of the new things are ever going to stick. We know that there are some inevitable baseline states for superheroes that they're always inevitably going to go back to. Like, I don't care that, you know, whatever big twisty thing you've come up with has happened. It just bugs me when you act like, okay, this is going to be forever. Look, comic books as an industry can't aggressively, and by the way, again, I'm talking about the big two, not some of the cooler indie books, can't aggressively not court younger fans and then act like we don't know what's happening. Like, either recruit eight-year-olds to read comics again or stop acting like we're not, you know, adults in our 30s and 40s who have been through this several million times already. See, the thing is, that was a thing in the Silver Age where they talked about how there was a thing where you could feel free to repeat a plot as long as it was from, I think it was four years ago, because it was assumed that you would have a brand new audience and it wouldn't be the same kids reading who would get mad that you were just repeating plots. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, my intro to comics was Archie Comics, and Archie Comics is still for kids, and that's definitely something they do in Archie Comics. In fact, I think the time I decided that I was done reading Archie comics as a child mm-hmm. was the time that I picked up a double digest at the grocery store and every single story was one I'd already read. And I was like, ah, time to move on to Wonder Woman, I see. I I understand that experience. Yeah. I'm sorry, Farscape. Let's talk about Exodus from Genesis. So we open with Fish King doing a painting. Yeah, so Rigel is painting a self-portrait and very bold he has he appears to have no mirror or anything he's painting a self-portrait from memory i feel Hmm. like that's hard also also he appears to have his snacks and his paints in the same bowl with each other oh god did he not see that one episode of daria i that was exactly what i was thinking of the episode of daria where jane uses melted gummy bears for her art project and then tom eats them and she gets mad at him for eating the gummy bears which to be fair you can't just assume that gummy bears sitting out are like on a bowl on the table those all right i guess they were fair game although i can't imagine you seeing a thing of melted gummy bears and thinking i'm just gonna reach my hand and grab a no no she hadn't melted them yet she'd only Uh, separated them by color uh, but you know what they were separated by color yeah, I, I, I would wait before going in there. I mean, I generally ask if it's okay before eating anything that is in someone else's house. I was going to say that's because we were both raised very waspish, but you know who else was? Tom. Exactly. I feel like Tom was a good high school boyfriend for Daria. Yeah. Not so much for Jane. Well, I mean... I think Nathan was a good uh, high school boyfriend for Jane. I think if... MTV had had the courage of their convictions, they would have given Jane a good high school girlfriend, but that is a story for a different podcast. My dream podcast, Gal Pals, Lesbian Undertones in Pop Culture. So, after we see Rigel, not painting with gummy bears, but he is eating out of the same bowl that his paints are in. Not not a smart idea. Uh, 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 Maybe his paints are edible. Point. I mean, uh, maybe for his race. Yeah. He does fart helium after all. Yes. And then speaking of weird alien things, we then see Dargo forcing a worm into John's mouth, a, a worm which they call the dentic. It is a parasite that you put in your mouth and it runs along your teeth and eats all of the like food particles and bacteria in your mouth and it's how they clean their teeth instead of brushing them. And John almost swallows it and he grabs him by the throat and he's like, don't, 
don't don't swallow it. He he says it really ominously too. He's like, never swallow the dentic. This never comes back again. Do the dentics come back? Not in the show. Uh, I have read at least one Farscape novel that uses the dentics, just as a throwaway joke. I I do enjoy, not throughout this episode, but in a fair amount of this episode, they do kind of treat John like he's a very smart beagle. Oh, poor John. Well, and I mean, this this is a reminder of how John is completely out of place in this world. You know, he he doesn't even know how to brush his teeth. Your asses would have been so fucking screwed if it wasn't for him. Oh, man, yeah. Well, La- Last episode. Last episode, even. First episode. And, and honestly, this episode, too. John is good at what he does. It's just that he doesn't know how to brush his teeth. Yeah, like... Seriously, Dargo, after after freeing Moya by ripping out a bunch of wires in the first episode, what is one positive thing you've done on the show thus far? I mean, it, it, John is right in the in the scene that we did as an intro. They all need to cut him some slack. Yeah, like he can't figure out how to do basic stuff on the ship, but he saved them so many times three episodes in. Yeah, but this whole demonstration of how John doesn't know what world he's in is interrupted when the ship starts pitching all around, and everybody runs to command to see what's going on. Uh, John does make a comment that the dentic tastes minty, which mm. I think is to make it seem less gross to us. <laughs> that a giant larva was just crawling around his mouth? Yup. So, Pilot's like, hey, you know how every episode we've basically had something wrong with the ship? Well, something's wrong with the ship. Well, it's not something wrong with the ship yet. They have encountered what appears to be an asteroid field, and Dargo's trying to get Aaron to maneuver around it, but Aaron lets him know that the asteroid field isn't the problem. The problem is that there is a marauder ship, a peacekeeper ship, on the other side of the debris, and they, just by the fucking luckiest luck that ever lucked, are on the other side of a debris field so the ship can't scan for them. Mm. So this is Crace hunting for John. One would think that Crace would be in the earlier episodes more. Is this why they aired them out of order? Because I feel like, I mean, I know we're only three episodes in, but we haven't seen him since the pilot. I mean, that makes sense. We don't see him at all in IET. So yeah, I guess I would understand why you'd want to show more Crace before. I mean, if he's going to be the main villain for the early bit of the show. Which he definitely is. And we don't see Crace in this episode either, but I feel like that's okay because... The Marauders are his his advanced scouts, right? So they are the Crace in this episode. So the Marauders are basically like an elite strike force team. It's five peacekeepers who are like specially trained to go and kill people because that's what they do. So John's like, what are they? What are what are they flying? What are we dealing with? And Aaron's like, it's a bloopity bloop bloop. And he's like. Why, that's like a space Hyundai. You could just blow it right out of the water. Okay, so actually, actually, she says that their maximum speed is Hetch 7. And John's like, Hetch 7? That's nothing! Which means that he has at least learned some stuff about space. Yeah. Also, they're not going to know what a Hyundai is, John. They're... Also, also, what a weird slam. Yeah, poor Hyundais. What, what did a Hyundai ever do to you? I mean, to be fair, Hyundais suck. Aw, I, I don't know why I have strong feelings about this, but I drive a Honda. They're good cars. I have no feelings about Hondas. But Dargo points out that even if they outrun the Marauders, 
That means Crace will know where they are, and they cannot outrun Crace's command carrier, so they just have to hide. So hiding has temporarily helped. Mm-hmm. The peacekeepers have missed them and are now flying in presumably the wrong direction. And I love this because I think my favorite relationship on this show is the pilot-Aaron relationship. And pilot just takes a moment and says, we work well together, officer, soon. Yeah, and they had a kind of neat connective moment last episode, so I do like that this is building on that. Yeah. I mean, it's a good idea to make friends with the thing you're currently living inside of. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. This moment of camaraderie is interrupted for us, the viewer, as we see that the thing that is not an asteroid field, but in fact a mass of tiny bugs, swarms inside of the ship. Gross. And then we cut to credits. So... We're back in space. I guess we're perpetually in space. Yes. John is helping out the... DRDs. DRDs, thank you. I, 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 I never space remember. Roombas. Space Roombas. I nearly called it an R2-D2. Eh, a little bit. Everybody's basically cleaning up because things got all thrown askew when the ship was tilting hither and yon. And Aaron explains to John why the Marauders are so effective and she draws out on the ground in some of the in some thing that has spilled on the ground. She draws out a cross hatch pattern, like a, a an asterisk, mm-hmm. and it's like the Marauders. They follow a strict hatch pattern, so nothing escapes them. And I'm like, Aaron, space is three D. You you have explained nothing about their pattern. Yeah, I it just it makes me think about that one scene in Futurama, where Leela's trying to stop the. Uh, planet express ship from going to that planet with the penguins and they built a human wall and planet express ship just goes up and over them and she's like oh right space is three-dimensional yes exactly i mean i think about that whenever there's a sci-fi show or movie and it's like space is in all directions i mean essentially no sci-fi show acknowledges that space is in all directions But Erin gets kind of misty. I mean, not misty, because she's Erin. She would never get misty. But whatever the Erin equivalent of misty is, she gets it talking about these marauders, because they're like the elite group that everyone wants to be, and she was waiting to hear on whether or not she would get a promotion to the marauders. I'm sorry. She points out the ship is called a marauder. The group are called commandos. (sighs) She was waiting to hear whether or not she'd be promoted to a commando when everything went down, and now she's, you know... Untouchable. She wanted to go commando. Yes. Speaking of Ben Browder's ass. Yes. Speaking of Ben Browder, John is all like, yeah, none of us are where we thought we were going to be, Aaron. Yeah, get over yourself. Ooh, boo-hoo, I don't get to be a space fascist murdering people. Grow up. Yeah. And then John's like, we should work together. And she's like, we're not friends, we're not family. And I just have to say again, I love about this show... That just because a bunch of people are thrown into a situation together, the show doesn't make them immediately become best friends and trust each other. It makes them earn that over the course of the show. Yeah, John's like, come on, shut up and be my friend. Get over your stupid fascist army and upbringing and all that jazz. Well, because John was raised on that science fiction. So he's like, we're all thrown in a situation together. Aren't we all friends now? And Aaron's like, no, this is the real world. John would be very into Steven Universe. Yes. Well, because they're both bards. Yes. Elsewhere, Zan is uh, cleaning up the ship. Yeah, she's helping out Rigel, whose painting got knocked down and paint got sprayed everywhere. And 
his painting got messed up because uh, he was like, he had brushed to painting when the ship started rocking. So now there's a giant red streak across it. And then, okay, I think this is really rude. I also think it's rude, but I mean, it's better than what he was doing, but it's still rude. Zan goes over and just completely paints over his painting. Okay, I I feel like they used speeded up footage for her powers last episode and they're doing it again here. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Like you're saying that like, you already did that, do something new. But in fact, what you're talking about is consistency. Yes. But she soul painting him, which just comes out as a better painting of him. She's like, I was drawing your soul essence and it's just a painting of him. It's not like... I would think it would be more abstract if she was drawing a soul essence, but... That makes sense. Uh, Rigel says that the painting looks like Rigel I, his most honored ancestor. And then she all flatters him and is like, Yes, Rigel I is clearly, you know, you have a piece of his spirit in you. It's not said, but I like to think that your number isn't based on chronology, but based on how successful you were as an emperor. So Rigel the first was like the 10th Rigel. It's just he was the best Rigel. Mm. I love that idea, especially because we skipped past it. But Rigel tells Zan that he is the most attractive of all his brothers. And that's why his mother banished all of his older brothers <laughs> so that he could be Dominar. God. Ugh. Oh, my God. You know who he is? Emma Roberts's character in Scream Queens. Oh, I never saw that. We found out that she had a uh, she had a baby brother, but the parents gave him up for adoption because he had cradle cap, and they thought it was gross. Wow! It took me way longer than it should have to realize that that show was a parody. I never its tone was always too inconsistent for me to enjoy it. Well, I mean, you know how Glee—that's the Ryan Murphy way, right? Yeah, it's like how Glee started out as a parody of teen shows, except it wasn't full enough of a parody to stop it from just becoming a regular teen show over time well it's actually an amazing thing that the av club talked about a lot when they did were doing glee recaps how it's like there were three different shows and you never knew from episode to episode which one you were going to get like you didn't know if you were going to get a high school musical or an amazing biting satire of high school musical or a very special after school special yeah I want to like Ryan Murphy's shows more than I do because I feel like there's never a consistent enough tone. Yeah, well, when he was doing Popular way back in the day. Oh, God, Popular. That show should have been, like, right up my alley. But there was something, you know what? There was, like, a core of meanness to it that made me not able to like it all the way. I mean, uh, honestly, that's why I stopped watching Scream Queens. Like, it felt nasty in a way that wasn't fun yeah and i mean i i like it's always sunny in philadelphia right like i'm not against meanness but there was something about it was like the show itself hated itself it hated its characters in in like some fundamental way it hated the sort of people who would enjoy it yes yes well we've solved that let's go back to farscape yes so John is being a sad boy. Yeah, Aaron and Aaron and John are still in the cargo bay working on stuff. And we see from the point of view of what we will know are, are the bugs. We see from the point of view of the bugs, them crawling around and looking at things and shooting a little dart into Aaron's foot. Mm. And Aaron is getting increasingly grouchy. And I totally relate because it is very hot. And I cannot stand any 
like temperature fluctuations. I can't stand it if it's too cold. I can't stand it if it's too hot. Mm. And she's talking about how it's too hot. And John's like, I don't feel it. Fuck you, John. It's hot. Yeah, you are different species. I actually find this really funny because, yeah, they are different species. Later on, Darga's going to be like, this is a mild winter on my planet. Shut up, Dargo. But somehow they've just decided what optimum is. Because I, I actually think this is really clever that they just talk about the temperature of the ship as, for instance, right now John goes and checks the thermostat and it's optimum plus three. So we as the viewers don't need to worry about what the temperature is. We don't, as Americans, have to convert Fahrenheit to Celsius because that never makes sense to me. Like, you all should be freeze. I don't understand it. So I, and so I think the optimum plus three, later they're going to get like optimum plus 15. Like, that all makes sense to me. I like it. It's great. You don't have to play that Buffy game that you play. Oh my god, yeah. Look at, like, any scene where it's outdoors with three or more characters and be like, what temperature is it based on what everyone is wearing? It is a fun Buffy game to play. But I do think that optimum, in quotation marks, is probably optimum for sebations. Oh yeah. I mean, because this ship was re-kajiggered to be a sebation ship, right? I mean, it was taken by sebations. Yeah, yeah. They, they messed with it. They put, like crap in moya's brain and all that jazz yeah so so dargo comes over the communicator and is like yeah there's something wrong we're not venting heat we have to figure out where the blockage is and aaron's like well then find the blockage i like how aaron like one of the bug things shoots a dart into her hand and she's like ow and i'm like you had way more of a reaction to that happening than to when rigel took a bite out of your arm last episode well when rigel took a bite out of her arm that's so interesting when Rigel took a bite out of her arm last episode, she was engaged in, to some extent, combat. Hmm. Dissipations have, like, biological things that kick in during combat. At... No, but I mean, she's trained to shrug it off. Hmm. Right now, she's engaging in, like, tech stuff, which we learn in PK Tech Girl, she finds beneath her. So getting a... Met she thinks it's a metal splinter, even though it's a dart from the bugs. So getting a metal splinter while she's fixing a technical problem is not something she's prepared to deal with. She's prepared to deal with fish guys taking gigantic bites out of her arm. I hadn't really put that together, but it totally tracks with this character and with what we know and will learn about her. We cut to command where Dargo is also pulling a dart out of his arm, so he has also just been darted. But we don't have time to deal with that because it's it's getting hot. It is getting hot in here, so Ben Browder needs to start taking off clothes. Actually, all of the characters start taking off clothes. Also, fun fact, Dargo is probably not wearing pants underneath that outfit because that actor's costumes were very hot, so he would he would famously only put on what needed what was gonna show. Mm. Well, there, there's some interesting stuff with uh, Ted Raimi being one of the deadites in the Evil Dead movies, where <laughs> there's a bit where he takes off a glove and just sweat pours out oh. of it. Sorry, too gross? No, no. But I imagine that has to be the Dargo actor all the time. Yeah, probably. Although, uh, not so much with Zan. I feel like Zan's wearing one of those outfits that's like very comfortable in a lot of different temperatures. Like, it, it's covering a lot, but it's also kind of light and airy. Yeah. Also, as a plant-based life form, Zan is probably less bothered by temperature changes, unless they're very extreme. Yeah. So, they're going to search the ship level by level and try to find what it is that's blocking 
Moya from venting the excess heat out into space. So this is another X is wrong with the ship. We have to find something to fix X. Well, I mean... I'm sorry, but we're three for three at this point. It's space show. Yeah, it's every episode of every space show. X is wrong with the ship. We have to find something to fix X. Okay, look, you're in space. Space is not a friendly environment for humans. Apparently, some creatures can just live in space, but humans are not one of them. Hmm. So any conflict, I mean, um, the main conflict is going to be this thing that you desperately need because you will die without it. And it's so finicky needs you to do something think about what it would be like if every time something went wrong with your computer you couldn't breathe no i i get it but that changes later right oh yeah it's not every episode we're gonna have to deal with something going wrong with moya no 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 i just i i know it's not really super analogous but i keep going back to what if there was a show about jonah and the whale and every episode something was wrong with the whale and jonah had to fix it that is, no, that's not what's happening. And and also, yes, the show will definitely become about interpersonal conflicts. Don't, don't worry about that. I would watch that show, though. Not a lot, but... A show about Jonah living in the whale? Yeah, and he's like a whale biologist. <laughs> well, oh, have... is that going to be the prequel to that one episode of Futurama with the whale biologist who hates whales? Yeah, this is the backstory of that whale biologist. He had to live inside of a whale for a few years when he was in graduate school. That's how you graduate from whale school. Back on our Leviathan, John is complaining to Zan, as we as we previewed in our in our cold open, that nobody takes him seriously because he doesn't know how to open doors. He's like, everyone treats me like a beagle, but not a cute beagle. A beagle that was foisted upon them. Well, Zan gives him some advice. She tells him, look, Dargo and Aaron are warriors, so you just need to, like, prove yourself to them as a warrior. Just be useful, and they'll stop treating you like you're useless. Okay, she does kind of give that context, which I do like because, as I pointed out, he's already saved their asses several times at this point, but none of it has been warrior-based. It's all been... It's all been science-based, which they actually don't have respect for. Or bard-based. Which, again, no respect. Yeah, he saves them using social skills and, you know, other skills. Although, just, just a little preview of the end of this episode... John saves the day at this end of this episode by, like, scoring a critical hit on a bluff check, Mm. which is such a bard move. We just watched the episode of Gravity Falls. We have Disney+, Plus, so naturally the first thing we did was start watching Gravity Falls. Even though I already own it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the version we watch if we want to see Grunkle Stan's proper hat. What is even happening? Okay, go ahead. But... There's the episode where uh, Mabel gets a little taller than Dipper and he gets really jealous and she has to explain that this is important to her because he's better than her at all of these different things. And it doesn't come up in the episode, even though it is an important point, that she's better than him socially. Like, he might be better at school. He may be, I don't want to say smarter than her, but better at, like, applied science stuff yeah, than her. Yeah, like, he's beat her every time they've played chess, but she has friends. Yeah, and it, it does sort of tie into this thing with social skills being... Devalued? Yeah, I, I was going to say an undervalued thing, which 
I feel like sexism is there somewhere, but I'm not sure where. I mean, it's true that fighting is a skill that's definitely coded male, and emotions is a thing that's definitely coded female, so it makes sense that we would value one and not the other. But what's great about this show is Dargo and Aaron, both warriors, gender never comes up. John is the emotional one. John and Zan. John and Zan, yeah. Um, but John isn't treated like it's somehow feminizing for him to have emotions. Do you know what? John might be, I don't want to say this because I'm sure I'm forgetting some terrible things that are going to happen, but John might be an example of non-toxic masculinity. Huh. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that I don't love about Gravity Falls, but I do think is an important part of it is Dipper's relationship with masculinity. Uh-huh. Especially, I mean, we see that with the way he treats Wendy. Yeah. And, and but the show is about him growing out of that. Yeah, and there's a really good episode later where they kind of confront that a lot of the cues he's been taking are from Grunkle Stan, whether he wants to or not, and how that's not a positive thing, like how masculinity needs to evolve over time, because... A lot of the ideas that, let's be frank, didn't actually work for our grandparents don't work for us. Right. Because people are like, oh, you know, it was a different time back then. Yeah, time when you couldn't get divorced. Yeah, it wasn't really a different time back then. And women couldn't have credit cards. Mm. Like, so they had to deal. Okay, so in addition to talking about how John's a bard, let's keep an eye out for if he actually is a good example of non-toxic masculinity. Because I think he might be, even though I'm sure people are going to tweet or private message me about terrible things he's done that I'm forgetting. Yeah. There was, we already had a little non-consensual kissing last episode. It wasn't the best. He's not Kirk. Oh my god, no. He's not even Riker. So John goes off to check the vents in the living quarters, and he does a little strip tease for us as he does. Yeah, he, <laughs> Zan's like, you just have to prove yourself, and he's like, all right, Seriously, he takes off his jacket in a very, like, sexy way. He literally turns around to face Zan as he pulls off his he, jacket like, slowly. He lets it slide off his body. But yes, no, he's very showy while removing his clothing. It is like a strippery version of that one scene from the Anastasia movie. Honestly, this episode, starting now, because remember, the whole plot right now is that it's getting hot in here. So take off all your clothes. Yeah, but also, like, everyone is hot and sweaty, and it's just like, I'm just sure this episode awakened something in several people. That's all I'm saying. Mm. So John goes to his living quarters and sees a bug? Yes, and sees a bug, and he immediately turns around, squats down, and then jumps onto a table. Okay, so yeah, he jumps up onto the ledge of the window. I guess it's a window. Yeah. But yeah, no, the camera does highlight his ass as he does so. I did not notice this till you pointed it out. There's a lot of John ass in this episode. Yes. Well, it's because he's been wearing that bulky spacesuit up until now. And now you see, hey, Ben Browder is a real fit dude. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Anyway, he uh, he jumps up on the ledge. And okay, so how would you describe this bug? Uh, Tube-shaped? It's, it's like a, one of those weird, hard worm beetle things you know what i'm talking about right yeah okay it's kind of larva-y it looks to me like somebody took a 
giant cockroach mold mm-hmm. and put it on top of a DRD. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can definitely, especially the way they move. Yeah. It's funny because it'll switch back and forth. Later, it will sprout legs and move around. And then it looks nothing like it looks when it's scooting across the room. When it's scooting across the room, it's like clearly on top of one of the DRD robots. Yeah. And it's got like eye stalks and it's got these like hand stalks that have all of these like threads that can grasp things. And like one stalk that has this kind of almost white dart that comes out of it. It's... Mm. They're creepy. I would do what John does, which is freak out, call for help, and then kill one. I mean, honestly, John handles this situation pretty well, all things considered. Like, he's up on the table, and he's, like, trying to kind of, or ledge, and he's kind of crawling around, and there's another one in the vent that sort of pops out at him. Yeah, it's, like, right where his hand is. So he, like, parkours over to another ledge. And he radios for help, and Dargo's like... Why don't you catch one so we can see what they are, you giant wiener boy? And Aaron's like, don't let them back in the vents. And he says to them, between you and me, guys, you can go wherever you want. <laughs> but then he does grab one, toss it into a pillowcase, and just beat it to death. Yeah, he just, it, one of them sprouts legs, and it's it's kind of coming at him. So he grabs a pillowcase, and he wraps it up, and then he's just wanging it against the walls and the floor. Yeah, which is weird because this is the moment where this becomes the plot of Ender's Game, by the way. Yes, this episode is the plot of Ender's Game. So, I love how he, he bangs it against the the wall and the floor and the wall and the floor. And he's like, I'm done. And then it starts wiggling and he's like, wall, floor, wall, floor, wall, floor again. Well, it's like a horror movie, right? It seems like it's dead and then it has that one moment where it hops back to life. And then he, like, beats it down again. And he, like, picks up the pillowcase he's wrapped it in. And the pillowcase is, like, dripping with fluid. It's super gross. It's, he picks it up in a way so Ben Browder's bicep enters the, like, this episode is really big on sexualizing Ben Browder. It is definitely objectifying his body. That is not a lie. Yeah, I'm not used to shows doing this with male characters it's it's odd refreshing yeah it's it's not unwelcome it's just not he is something a handsome man he is a handsome man who definitely works out and it- then there's rigel <laughs> well, he's a puppet oh that's not an excuse puppets can work out i i, I remember the weird alien that built itself out of other aliens later on that was a puppet and that was ripped you're right that that puppet is ripped or the borg queen the borg queen's definitely not a puppet is the borg queen is a woman in makeup but who is also ripped well i mean in the context of the show she's just made out of corpses and robot bits so like in universe she's a puppet who made herself out of the best bit she could find for seducing humanity. The Borg Queen is stupid. I'm sorry. You're thinking of the Borg Queen's monster. <laughs> oh, <God>. So in Zan's lab, she's cutting into the bug to figure out what is up with the bug. And I like—I lo- really like this. She's kind of singing a chant, uh, a prayer to the bug to honor it. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Mickey. Something like that. I don't understand what she thinks she's going to get out of this. I mean, wouldn't you just... I mean, it turns out that, yeah, there's stuff going on with the bugs, but if if there were cockroaches in the ship, would she be dissecting the cockroaches to see what's up with them? Well, I think so, because as much as 
as much as Zan is honoring the life of this creature that she's inspecting, and as much as she is a non-violent priest character, mm. her, her goal here is to figure out what chemical they can flush through the ship that will kill all the bugs and not them. Ah, uh, smart. I mean, that's... She doesn't say it out loud, especially because everything that's going to happen happens, but that's the reason to be examining the bug, right? <laughs> So, John's pretty freaked out by his little encounter, understandably. But he's more freaked out to learn that the bug has his DNA. Ugh. Nasty. Yes. And Aaron's like, hey, John, shut up and stop whining. Go get us another bug because you kind of messed this one up too much. Yeah, go get one that's alive. Meanwhile, they're at a junction in the ship that has been completely covered over with blue goo. And Dargo is trying to cut through it with, like, a space laser, and nothing. It's not budging at all. Hey, Dargo, why don't you try that stupid-looking plastic sword of yours? So... But proving proving your point, Dargo gets tired of trying to cut through the blue stuff and just tries to cut through the bulkhead next to the blue stuff, and Pilot gets pissed off because he's cutting into Moya a living being. Seriously. You... We, we just had an episode about that. We've had two episodes in a row about why that's a bad idea. And one of the DRDs goes and, like, shocks Dargo. Good. I like the DRDs more than I like Dargo. Dargo has let John know, though, that the reason Aaron is being such a bitch to everyone right now mm-hmm. is that sebations don't have whatever gland it takes to regulate heat. They're like pigs. Okay, I mean, they do sweat, though. Okay, so they're not like pigs. This is a very sweaty episode. This is an an incredibly sweaty episode. If you want to see Claudia Black nearly naked and covered in sweat, this is an episode for you. This episode is a little bit of something for everyone. Yeah, I guess it does. (laughs) No matter who you want to see sweaty and naked. Well, not sweaty and naked, but... Sweaty and... Sexualized. Yes. So... Apparently, sebations do not do well in the heat, and... This is apparently going to be really important later. Yeah. Well, I mean, heat delirium is always going to be a thing. hmm And John goes to talk to Aaron, and she fills him in on the details of heat delirium. Basically, sebations, if it gets too hot for them, first they lose their motor control, then they lose their short-term memory, then they lose their long-term memory... But it doesn't kill them. They just walk around not knowing who they are or what they're doing or able to hold anything. And they call it the living death. So this is going to be my running thing throughout this episode. She has a little ship she can just get in. Why didn't she do that? Well, I mean, it's true she could get in her prowler and fly away. Yeah. Or just like fly behind them for a little bit. Until they get it worked out. Yeah, I guess that makes more sense. I I was going to say... I don't know how long... The Prowler is designed to fly out of a command carrier, shoot people, and then fly immediately back to the command carrier. So I don't know how long it can go on its own. Yeah. But, I mean, if this is an eminent threat... Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point. And they have a few other ships, don't they? Moya has her own shuttles, it's true. So this is basically only an issue because no one thought of... It's a bottle episode. No one can leave. Aaron tells John that the heat, the living death of heat delirium is the only time peacekeepers kill their own for mercy. Oh, okay, because I was about to say that can't possibly be there true. There is a long pause there, though, before she adds for mercy. Mm. I don't think that was in the script, though. I feel like that was Claudia Black. So, meanwhile, 
we go through the bowels of Moya to see that a whole bunch of stuff is just splorching out. Yeah, the lights are blinking, Moya's flying around, and John comes across Zan turning the heat up instead of down on one of those vent things that she showed him earlier. I do like how John's muttering to himself about how he's like, it had my DNA. Why doesn't anyone get that it's a big deal that it had my DNA? It feels like it had a big it feels like a big deal that it had my DNA. You know, I really like John. <laughs> I'm glad you like John. John tries to stop Zan from turning the heat up, which is the opposite of what they're trying to do. And she just, like, clocks him, knocks him to the ground, turns the heat all the way up, and then vomits blue goo onto the control so that it can't be turned to cool. Mm. So John runs up to Aaron and he's like, hey, so I think Zan's like possessed or something because she attacked me and she turned up the heat and she vomited blue goo and I don't know her that well. Maybe that's normal, but it seems kind of weird. But Aaron doesn't respond to him. Instead, she just keeps typing at one of the consoles in command and Pilot tells John that she is turning up the heat. He feels her forehead and says she's not sweating, so she must have heat stroke. And it's like, John, you just learned that she has a fundamentally different physiology than you. That doesn't necessarily mean heat stroke, but okay, whatever. Hmm. He tries to stop her from initiating the command that's going to, like, blast all of the heat, but she ignores him. She headbutts him, (laughs) knocks him to the ground, and he, like, tackles her. And while she's trying to fight him off, he ends up accidentally pulling her arm off. Whoops. I'm sorry, there are so many shots of Ben Browder's ass during this fight. This fight sequence is Ben Browder's ass heavy. There is is no doubt about it. Oh, uh, it's... The camera keeps on revolving, so it's in the main shot. It's really bizarre. I mean, good for them being equal opportunities, but, like... Yeah. I mean, you could you could say that it's not sexual. I mean, it's definitely sexual. But you could say that it's a juxtaposition between, like, Ben Browder's sexy ass and the body horror of the fact that he just ripped off Aaron's arm. And Aaron walks up and she's like, huh. She sees a version of herself on the floor and Ben Browder holding her arm and she's like, huh. This, this, this is new. Yeah. We go to commercial then and when we come back... We're in Zan's lab again, and Zan is examining the fake Aaron and saying, you know, it's exactly like Aaron. Everything about it is identical. It has Aaron's DNA. And then John, who apparently hasn't brought this up before, is like, oh, when you attacked me in the corridor. And Zan's like, I didn't attack you in the corridor. He's like, right, it must have been a clone of you. Keep in mind, it's it's important. The exterior is exactly like Aaron, but the interior is all blue goo. Yes, that is accurate. So uh, Aaron asks if either one of the clones said anything before they attacked John, and John's like, no. No, they didn't. I guess they can't speak. Good. That's a good, good thing to know. Interesting that we had... Last week on, Char- on our Charmed podcast, an episode about shapeshifters, and now we have, like, crew cloning bugs in this episode. Yeah. It's a nice... It, it lined up nicely. It did. Especially because we're doing them in the order they're supposed to be done in, because if we were doing them in the air order, we would have had some other episode. It's true. So, the horror now, obviously, is that there is an army of bugs that look 
like the crew and you're not going to know who's a bug and who's a crew until it starts to kill you. You know, the easy solution would just to have to be... Talking all the time? Yeah, exactly. Dargo suggests that they all cut off their pinky finger. Oh, okay, so... Hopefully you never... Hopefully you don't run into more than 10 clone races in your adventures. Well, yeah. My thought was more, okay, why wouldn't they just clone you without your finger then? Because they have Aaron's haircut. Yeah, they absolutely would just clone you without your finger. And and, uh, John's like, no, that's stupid. Look, and he picks up a marker and he makes a red mark on his hand, which is also dumb. Just talk. Talking. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's not the point that we're at in the episode. We're at the point in the episode where everybody puts a red mark on their hand. Weirdly, John puts it on the back of everyone's hand, but because Dargo's costume includes gauntlets, he has to put it on Dargo's palm. I feel like that was a last second adjustment because they realized they couldn't put it on his hand. Zan's like, look, we can't turn down the heat because there's blue sludge over all of the thermostats in the ship. And since apparently Aaron can't just get on her own damn ship for 10 seconds, we have to deal with this now. And Ben Browder's like, okay, so we need to find something to dissolve the uh, blue sludge, which... Eh. So now they all have missions. Zan's going to figure out how to dissolve the blue stuff. Rigel's going to be thrown into the ship's innards to go find the bugs and commune with them. And Aaron is going to go down to pilot because that's where she feels naturally drawn. So the next scene is one of my favorites in the episode. Well, it's a really good Aaron and uh, pilot scene. Yeah, Aaron is having an existential crisis with pilot because she can't, she's starting to lose her motor functions. And if she can't hold a weapon, what is she even? And Pilot, like, reaches out an arm and and comforts her. And then he talks about how it's so strange because he's been so afraid of peacekeepers and he's not afraid of her. She gets offended by it and he's like, no, it's, it's a good thing. It's a compliment. Yeah. He suggests that they shut down the ship and open up all of the cargo bay doors and just vent everything into space and, like, let some cool air. Open a window. Yeah. Open a space window. Aaron says they can't do that because then they would be super vulnerable, sitting ducks for anything that came by them. Hey, remember that thing that was introduced earlier in the episode that hasn't been mentioned in like 20 minutes? Oh yeah, interesting. But they do it anyway. They turn off all of the ships and they open the cargo bay doors. So just so you know, Moya is sitting defenseless in space right now. So we get a quick shot of Rigel struggling through moya's guts it's so weird because he's like inside the wall looking for the bugs and john and dargo are like walking along the hallway like banging on the wall like that's doing anything other than annoying rigel like what are y'all doing he's essentially in the crawl space of the ship yeah basically dargo talks a little bit about sebation heat delirium and how he you know hates peacekeepers and he wished they would all die of heat delirium hmm John gets all offended because he hasn't been living under a fascist regime. So he's all like, but the one peacekeeper I know is nice to me. How can you hate peacekeepers? Even though she's not nice to him at all, even a little bit. I do like Dargo's next comment, though, which is, if it means anything to you, the part of me that wants Aaron to live is slightly bigger than the part of me that wants all peacekeepers to die. Progress. John says that's not much. And Dargo says, well, it's what I've got. Back at Pilot Station, it's gotten just a couple of degrees colder, and Aaron is kind of crouched down underneath Pilot's console, and 
she's also worried not only that she doesn't know who she is and she's going to succumb to the living death, but also that no one on the ship cares to save her because why would they? Because she's a peacekeeper and peacekeepers have been oppressing all of their races forever. Also, she's not been the nicest person. Yeah, that too. In the guts of the ship, Rigel comes across the the alien, well, what he discovers is the alien's nest. She has built a giant nest and she is just spitting out eggs like that one American Godzilla movie that was so terrible. Yes. I think this is actually really cool because we see the like membrane of the hive and you only see the queen like a little bit behind it. It's very eerie and scary. Um, It's very well shot. I mean... The show is shot like a horror movie, which works to its benefit most of the time. Yeah, the shots of the queen are super effective for how little we see of her. And I guess, I guess Brian Henson knows how to shoot puppets. Well, it's also, Farscape is a really claustrophobic show. I mean, a lot of sci-fi, I say as though I'm an expert, but a lot of the sci-fi I've seen plays with the fact that space is big and open. There's, it's, you know you get the idea of the large, vast openness of space. And this show is mostly, yeah, it's big out there, but inside it's claustrophobic. It's it's a submarine. Yeah, yeah. In actuality, space is tiny because it's only as big as whatever ship you can build around yourself. Mm. Yeah. Zen, meanwhile, has found a substance that will dissolve the blue goo, so there's that. But before she can tell anyone or do anything with it, she is shot in the neck with one of those white darts that the bugs shoot out. Yeah, it feels like she should be dead. That, that like, that's a nightmare, like, right in the throat. Yeah, it's horrifying. Um, Dargo runs up to see if Zan's okay. Aaron is next to Pilot unconscious. John's trying to figure out what's going on with Rigel because he found the hive of aliens and he hasn't, and he stopped responding. That's probably not good, John. This is a good racking up the tension third act, but we're going to interrupt it for a sexy John on John fight. Yes, it is John v. John. Yeah, one of the alien bugs who looks like John comes up to John. It immediately sees the paint on his hand and then, like, almost to taunt him, raises its hand and duplicates the paint. See, the paint was stupid. It's just, I mean, your clothes aren't part of your DNA and it mimics the clothes. Right? So, like, talking. And John's like, this is weird. Can you understand me? Should we kiss? Yeah, but, they don't kiss. They start punching instead. And now you get two John asses for the price of one. Okay, the fight literally starts with alien John turning John around, bending him over, and then punching his back. It's weird. He's punching him in the kidneys, but yeah, it's it's pretty... I just... I, I, I This definitely awakened something in someone. That's... that's that's what happened. I don't... I mean, I know we're... I'm beating this horse into paste at this point, but... I guess it says something about how rarely men are sec- are sexualized to this degree that it, str- it keeps on hitting me as how weird it is that this is the focal point of the episode. It's true. If it was Claudia Black, it would probably be not as noticeable. I mean, we had that a couple episodes ago with Charmed where the 
shot, the the intro shot with Shannon Doherty's crotch. Right? And I mean, we've all, we've all read comics, so... <sighs> yeah, it's it's like if Frank Miller was into dudes. That's, yeah, that's what the, you're right, that's what the scene framing in this show is, in this I, particular episode is. Yeah, I remember more of Claudia Black's ass in the, uh, in this, in this episode, but we really haven't got any of it. No, no, we don't get, a, we don't get too much of Claudia Black's ass. Dargo comes up into command, he, he's carrying Aaron up into command, which, I don't know why he didn't just leave her down there. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it would be cooler here. I don't know. He carries Aaron up into command, and then John gets this awesome action hero horror movie moment where he strides into command carrying his own head. <laughs> he tells Dargo that, yeah, the the bug dudes can mimic their everything they see, so there's no way to know that they're you except that they don't talk, so just try to talk to them. Yeah, the obvious thing. John sits down to talk to Aaron, and she has gone into the delirium she thinks that she's in the middle of commando training they they check in with rigel and rigel's like yeah there's a fuck ton of bugs everywhere if i move they're going to tear me to shreds with their pointy pointy bits and Tarka's like okay don't move <laughs> and i do like rigel rigel's like thanks thanks ace advice oh and he's like look I, I can't do anything. I need to just... I, I can't do anything. He does let them know that, that the bug queen is, like, laying replicants so fast that everybody is screwed, essentially. And then Zan comes up to command. She's got the dart in her throat. And then she starts talking in a weird alien voice. She is... I am the speaker of the dead, or for the dead. I didn't read the Ender's Game books. That's a completely different thing. Um, Fun fact, though. She says she's the monarch of the Drac. Mm. The original script had, apparently, had the queen of the Drac be called the Sultana. Mm -hmm. But in Australia, Sultana is a breed of raisin. (laughs) So, So they changed it to monarch. That's disappointing. Well, I guess they didn't want to get sued by a raisin company. No, I think they just didn't want it to be confusing to the Australian audience. A weird captioning thing. Mm -hmm. When Zan starts talking as the monarch, it's captioned as male voice. I didn't think it was. It's Virginia Hay's voice. It's run through like a synthesizer, but it's Virginia Hay who's talking. Yeah. And the voice is the monarch who is a female. So, um... Where the hell did that come from? Drop your assumptions, caption guy. So, according to Zan, who is speaking as the monarch, it is her genesis. This is the time when she is reproducing. Yeah, her species flies through space until it hits something hot, and then it cranks up the heat on that thing until all of her larvae turn into space bugs, and then they fly into space. Okay, but she doesn't give them all of this information, John goes full-on bardic gather information skill. He's like, Genesis, is that your birth? You live in space, but you need heat to give birth. That's why you flew into our ship. And it's like, wow, John. It's a real Batman 66 moment. Like, he has basically no evidence, but gets everything right, right off the bat. I'm telling you, John is rolling all 20s this week. He he was like, ooh, I use my gather information skill. And the DM's like, all right, but you're going to have to roll a natural 20 to get anything out of her. And it's like, 
Bam. Read it and weep. So John is like, okay, well, great. So this is your birth cycle. How long does it last? And the monarchs all like, we don't, we don't understand the human notion of time. Ugh, barf. But they're halfway through, so... This must be the emotion you humans know as blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, John finds out they're halfway through her cycle, and he also realizes that, and this is the Ender's Game part, she didn't actually start attacking them until he killed the first bug. So, maybe humans are the aggressors. Nah. I mean, they invaded the space. Yeah. I mean, that's the deal with bugs, right? Yeah, they, they, they came into his house and they started killing his friends by cranking up the heat, so... Yeah. I mean, you don't really get the moral high ground, Monarch. He does manage to use reason with her and be like, Hey, you know if you keep cranking up the heat, the ship will die because it's a living thing. Yes, if you do this, then all of your children will die. Yeah, but he John does manage to convince the Monarch to turn down the heat... She confines them all to Zan's lab, except for Rigel, who is still stuck in the bowels of the ship surrounded by bugs. And he, he's like, are we done? I have to go to the bathroom. And John's like, hold it. There's a thing going on. Yeah. So they're all going to stay in Zan's lab until Genesis is over. And, and the monarch has turned the heat down a little bit so that Aaron doesn't die. And also, Aaron has stripped down to a tank top and tight, tight shorts. Yes, we are starting to, uh, I'm not going to say counterbalance John's sexiness this episode, but we're starting to broaden the general sexy appeal of this episode. Aaron's behavior towards John at the beginning of this episode has not indicated any warmth or attraction to him. But they are both so attractive in this episode. You're like, look at the two pretty people. Surely they will get together in three years. Spoiler, it takes a while for John and Aaron to get together. Not to be Johnny quotes a lot, but that one thing from Great News. Love is beautiful when both people are hot. I was thinking more of Grey's Anatomy. It's a scene from one of the later seasons when the show has kind of started to spoof itself. Where one of the interns sees two other interns making eyes at each other and is like, Oh, they're both so attractive. I wonder what's going to happen. That's a really good general purpose quote. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, I shouldn't be talking about how hot everything is because this is a very serious scene where Aaron asks John to kill her if the living death takes hold. Yeah. It is a little uncomfortable because it... It does feel a little bit like it ties into that women have to be sexy even when they're dying thing. But the thing that she's dying from is being too hot, which is, I think, probably the sexiest way to die. Well, it's like um, it's like when women in movies are dying of tuberculosis. It's like, look how skinny and pale she is with, like, all these red lips. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I think with tuberculosis, there's probably a lot of, like, puking and stuff in real life that they cut out. Right, of. it's not just a gentle cough. Yeah, it's not just, oh, oh, look how pretty I am in repose. And I'm sure heat stroke has similar things where it's not actually, you know, your skin is glistening with the dew of, you know. Okay, I've actually had heat stroke. It's not sexy at all. Yeah. So, what I'm getting at is... This is sexy because they are portraying heat stroke incorrectly. <laughs> it's alien heat stroke. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe just Sebastian's die all sexy, like. Although I will say, like, spoiler for what's coming up, those Sebastians do not look sexy when they're dying. Yes, just Aaron. Yes, she throws John's words back at him and tells him that a friend would do this. A friend would kill her before the heat delirium sets in, and family would do it quickly. Yeah, because John's like, I'm not gonna kill you, and she's like, uh, I thought you said we were friends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good for her. Yeah. We cut to the cargo bay where the Marauder has apparently found our ship and the commandos are emerging. I feel like if if this show got to choose how long it wanted to be, this subplot would not be in this episode. That's probably true. Yeah. Because it's sort of unnecessary and extra to the main plot. It is extra and unnecessary to the main plot, but... I'm actually going to say I, it does feel necessary to me because we need we need the reminder that Crace is out there. Yeah, because he hasn't appeared in two episodes. Yes. Uh, okay, so these commandos are just... I just... Okay, this isn't a thing that we ever see again. But for whatever reason, this squad of commandos has decided to bond by getting ridiculous eyebrow tattoos together. It's cute. We never see that again. It's weird. Do we see other commandos? Yes, but we they, we never see the weird tattoos again. So that's just something this crew has decided to do together. It's their thing. It's their thing. So they see the dead bug Aaron and they're like, oh, well, guess soon's out the window. Yep. And then they see one of the bug Dargos and they shoot it and they're like, damn, we are good. Look how fast we killed that Luxon. Oh, yeah, it's not like he's been taken out like a chump in literally every episode. <laughs> it's true. Goddamn, Dargo. Get your shit together, Dargo. So, I know I mentioned earlier that gender is so much less of a thing on this show, and theoretically, gender is not an issue with peacekeepers, with sebations. It's not one of the things that is is a prejudice in their society. You don't get any of those stupid, oh, you fight like a girl things? No. But this group of commandos consists of four men and one woman. Mm. And... It's a real uh, original X-Men thing going on there. Yeah. And it's worse than that. Do you know the story of the 12 dancing princesses? I think you've told me about this before. It's my favorite fairy tale. It's the one with that secret lake and... Right... Yeah, they, the princesses at night sneak out of their room and go to hell. They cross a lake to get to hell. Yeah, that, that's like under their... Yeah. But there's an invisible soldier following them who's trying to find out what it is they do every night. Mm -hmm. And the youngest princess knows that he's following them. She's like, I hear something behind us. And all of the other girls are like, oh, youngest princess, you don't know anything. And then like... He breaks a branch off behind them, and she's like, okay, I totally just heard a branch. And they're like, oh, youngest princess. That is totally the role of the woman on this group. She's like, okay, stuff is weird. And the commander's like, oh, only female on the team. Ugh. It's kind of hard to watch. Yeah, these fleet commandos seem like they're not very good at their jobs. They run in, and they're like... Boy, it's really hot. We probably don't have to worry about that. Yeah, they take off, like, a lot of their protective gear because it's so hot, but they just keep moving towards command. And it immediately starts to get a lot hotter because the monarch just knows that 
five other Sebastians have come on the ship and started shooting her kids. So as far as she's concerned, the deal is broken. Yeah, she doesn't know that these Sebastians aren't, you know, in cahoots with our main cast. Yeah. Cahoots. It's a good word. It is a good word. Down with the commandos, the woman turns the corner and sees another Dargo and is like, another Luxon! And the commander who hasn't turned the corner yet is like, there was only one Luxon on this ship. Calm down. Yeah, because they couldn't have picked up another Luxon at some point. Jesus fucking Christ, dude. Right? Like, what is going on? And then when he comes around the corner and they shoot the Luxon, the bug that looks like Dargo, he's not like, oh, I guess there is another Luxon. He's just like, nothing. He, he just turns to shoot the, the clone Zan instead. Like, I don't know. I just feel like this poor woman is... She obviously knows something is wrong and no one is taking her seriously. I mean, I guess she's a space fascist, so it's good that no one's taking her seriously, but still. So John's like, Monarch, why are you turning up the heat? What's going on here, Monarch? And, uh, and Aaron's like, kill me. And he's like, no, shut up. I'm going to handle this. Shut up. She actually says to him, and will say several times to him, remember your promise. He never... Prom- he he didn't he didn't promise. Yeah, he very conspicuously avoided saying, "Okay, fine, I'll kill you." I mean, maybe that happened off screen, but I'm pretty sure this is your short term memory playing tricks on you, Aaron. I think he might have said, "Like we'll deal with it when the time comes," which I suppose is vague. I guess. But meanwhile, the commandos are not doing so hot. Or rather, they're doing very, very hot. Oh, yes. They find one of the thermostats that's been gooed over, and they assume that the crew did this because the crew is fighting them with heat delirium, which would be a really good way to fight them. Yeah, why doesn't everyone do this? Well, I mean, sebations can't handle heat well, but it's still heat. Yeah, but I mean, like, as soon as a sebation comes on your ship, just crank up the heat. Like, you don't, you wouldn't want your sprinkler system going off all the time but if you were being attacked by wicked witches then you'd want you know yeah i mean it's a good strategy maybe some people do employ it Uh, especially dargo's people since apparently this isn't a big deal for him yeah yeah well i think the luxons are good fighters and bad strategists Mm. yeah so down in the bowels of the ship rigel has to talk to the monarch and explain to her what's going on. He's like, I can't, I can't. And Zan's like, what would Rigel the first do? And then he turns off his communicator and is like, I got this. Which is not helpful because they need to know that you've got this before you turn off your communicator. Seriously, dude. This, I, I think this is building up a lot on the relationships that were established last episode. Yeah, I noticed that too. Last episode had Zan... And Rigel, you know, as a team, and so did this episode. And last episode had a pretty strong Aaron pilot moment, and this also had a strong Aaron pilot moment. Yeah, it's interesting how they're kind of forming off into cohorts. And I think that this might be part of your issue with Dargo. Mm -hmm. Dargo doesn't have anyone to play off of yet. Yeah, he's mostly been playing off John, but John's also playing off everyone because he's the main character in this show. And his... His deal with John is that he's, like, the jock and John's the nerd. That's not something anyone watching Farscape wants to watch, right? Yeah. Or at least it's not like we're going to cheer for the jock. He's not even a competent jock. Yeah. You know, jocks are at least good at football or whatever. So Rigel gets up his nerve and he enters the nest to talk with the monarch. And I just want to know what you think of this shot. 
We don't get a lot more of Rigel walking, do we? This is the only time Rigel ever walks, and it was the most expensive shot in this episode. And then they realized, oh, that does not work at all. And no. also, we spent way too much money on it. It looks terrible. He's like, That's not a puppet, Rigel. That's a CGI, Rigel. That's the problem. Uh, I would think it would look less terrible. Well, I no, this is 1999 CGI. Well, I couldn't tell it was CGI, which speaks well to it. I just thought that the puppet was moving like that because that was the range of motion they could get on the puppet. Well, I think that's the motions are so jerky because it's bad CGI. But yeah, that's the only time we ever see Rigel walk. Good. <laughs> but the... Bug Queen moves some of her stuff so that Rigel can very awkwardly moonwalk but going forward. Moonwalking but forward. That is a perfect description of his movement. (laughs) So he can communicate with her and be like, hey, we're not the ones killing you. We're being invaded right now. And if you don't want all of your babies to be killed by peacekeepers, you, you need to help us out. Yeah, basically. So back in Zan's lab, Zan like reawakens as the monarch. So that she can tell them, you know, Rigel explained everything to me. Rather, I'm sorry, your sovereign explained everything to me. Oh, God. Yeah, Darga's like, he's not my sovereign. I didn't vote for him. And. Strange fish handing out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So she's going to let them fight the commandos. And then we cut to the commandos in the hallway. Main commando guy looks kind of like a dollar store Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. John steps out, and they shoot him, and then a little bug thing comes to tend to him, and they shoot it. Yeah. And then we see, and then we cut back to Zan's lab so that we can see that the monarch is in pain when this happens. So, like, you know, they're a hive mind. Every time you kill one of her bugs, it hurts her. Doesn't seem smart. Well, I mean, it's... I I know, she doesn't control She she doesn't have a choice. (laughs) So the monarch says that she's going to lower the temperature and let them out to fight the commandos. And John has an idea. And he says, no, crank the heat up. He looks over to Aaron and she says, yeah, do it. Even though she's clearly in pain. And the heat cranks up and it causes her even more pain. Couldn't they just crank it up in the rooms where the commandos are? I don't think they have that kind of control. Okay. And Zan is Zan again and tells John, you know, go fight the commandos. I will take care of Aaron and... Dargo has this moment with Aaron where he, like, respects that she's willing to take on the heat delirium so that they can have a chance against the commandos. And... <laughs> Zan is staying back to tend to Aaron. Couldn't she, like, take the heat from her or something? Is that not in her power set? I don't think that's in her power set. She could take some of the pain, right? I mean... That... Yeah, but the pain isn't the issue. I mean, obviously she's in pain, but the pain isn't the issue. The issue is that she's is that it's affecting her mind. I feel like being able to take the heat should be something that Zan can do. Ah, she's a plant. So now we see Dargo in the hallway lying in a pool of bug blood, which is such a good plan that I have to assume it was John's. Hmm. The commandos all go past him because they assume that this is just another dead Luxon, but nope, he's alive. He wakes up and he takes out the trailing guy and steals his gun. Honestly, all of the commandos are in sexy tank tops now too. Yeah, because it's so hot. Yeah. That's what I was saying. They had to strip down, too. And then we have a quick shot of Zan with uh, Aaron in the shower. Yeah, she's 
She's uh, showering Aaron to keep her alive. Yeah, she's showering her with cold water, and and Aaron's like, make sure John kills me. Gotta be John, huh? Well, I think she might think she's talking to John because she keeps just saying, remember your promise. Mm. Then we're back on the command deck where three of the four remaining commandos are just passed out. I mean, they're not passed out, they're still awake, but they are no longer doing anything. Yeah. The commander is still holding his gun, but he doesn't know who to shoot because the room just begins to fill with Johns. It's basically that scene with Charmed Dad from the Charmed episode we did. Oh, yeah, except instead of two of them, there's like 20 of them. So... Why did they shoot John earlier? I know. I would think that Chris would be upset that they killed John. I, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, didn't he want to kill John with his own bare ponytail? Yeah, absolutely he did. So John, the real John, goes up to the commander and is like, yeah, you can't kill me. I'm a species you've never heard of. You thought you shot me and here I am walking around and talking. Shooting me only makes more of me. Look how many of me there are now. I do like that he's like, go back to Crace and tell him he shouldn't have picked a fight with a human. So does Crace think that John has multiplication powers later, or is this just never I don't never think that doesn't, doesn't come up, now. But this is essentially where John wins his bluff check. Yeah. He's like, yeah, get back on the ship and take off and tell Crace to stop fucking hunting me down. And the commando... For a second, gets enough energy to get his knife out and hold his knife to John's throat. And the DM's like, John, what do you want to do? And John's like, I continue to bluff. He's like, go ahead and slip my throat. I'll just make ten more of me. I'll kill all of you and then I'll go kill Crace. And the Tom Cruise looking guy's like, bleh. And then he collapses on top of John and John kind of just shoves him to the side. Yep. And then the next shot we see is the Marauder leaving. So I guess it worked. Hmm. Gosh, getting out of the ship if you're going to die. That seems like a good idea, doesn't it? You know what? It... I know, it just needed to happen for the, the for this to have a plot. Aaron needs to be in danger. Yes. But what, this needed to happen for the episode to happen, and I'm sure there would have been like, a, oh no, there's blue gunk inside the escape shuttles for whatever reason or something. Yeah. The next thing we see is the DRDs clean up all of the blue gunk. Yes, and... Rigel goes up to John and he's like, I had blue crud up my ass. And John's like, gross. Also, my ancestor is Rigel the first, the most important Hynerian who has ever existed. And I look just like him. And John's like, that's, that's, that's neat, buddy. It's like, oh, it's not so much fun when people make references. You don't get John, is it? <laughs> uh. So all of the bugs are leaving and up on the command decks, Zan is going to speak as the monarch one last time and be like, hey, thank you for your hospitality. Yes, Genesis is concluded. We are pleased that only a few of my babies were killed. And then she, like, talks to Rigel as though he's the sovereign, which makes everybody except Rigel upset, but Rigel's super happy about it, and then... Zan is freed. She's like, that's a weird feeling. Hope that doesn't happen to me again. Well, the nice thing about Delvians is that when weird things happen to them, they kind of take it in stride. Yeah, I mean... She's like, that was an experience I've never had before. Yeah, she doesn't seem upset about being meat puppeted, or I guess plant puppeted. Yeah, plant puppeted. 
She, I mean, she she was a little upset about it earlier, but now that everything's over and done with, I think she's okay. She's like, I'm going to go sleep for a while. Why don't you go have some end of the episode conclusions with everyone else? Yeah, well, first John has an end of the episode conclusion with her where she's like, you proved yourself as a man of action, just like we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Except he didn't. He was still using his bard skills. Yeah, I mean, it's like Zan's impressed with him, but I don't think Dargo or Aaron particularly is. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, I take that back. We will know that Aaron is in the next scene when John goes to talk to her. But right now, John's talking about how he needs to get used to thinking about things differently, too. He's like, look, I was judging them for not having patience with me, but I needed to learn to have patience with the weird bug things in my room. Otherwise, everyone would have died. So I guess we all learned a very important lesson about space racism today. Something like that. Spacism. Sure. I mean, honestly, I do really like this scene with, with Zan, but it, it's really down to Virginia Hayes acting. She she gives John some good counsel and tells him that the answer to all problems is time and patience. Yeah, it's a nice speech. It's a nice moment for the two of them. Yes. She also tells him the answer is, the other the other answer to everything is reverence for all living beings, which uh... comes with time and patience. Well, yeah, I know, right? We we haven't even gotten into Zan's backstory, but that's okay. So, and she tells him, look, look, you're, it's really impressive how quickly you're getting used to everything that's going on. Like, you might feel like you're really behind here, but no, you're adapting better than anyone else on the ship, which is a really good point. Yeah. Uh, the next scene is John up on the terrace with Aaron, which is an awesome shot they're like in an enclosed area on the nose of moya so it's like they're it's like they're standing in the middle of space this is the second most expensive shot in the episode and we never go up on the space terrace again either which is unfortunate because this looks cool although i think i mentioned earlier that i was going to call out all the stuff that guardians of the galaxy stole from farscape because guardians of the galaxy is really way more of a farscape movie than a star than than a guardians of the galaxy movie yeah and this scene really feels like the scene with chris pratt and zoe saldana at the end of the first movie but that's it's so generic that i almost feel bad calling this one out especially when there's some very more specific scenes coming up yeah but i just had to point it out Aaron tells John basically the same thing he said to Zan about, like, learning to respect lower beings. And then John comedically realizes that she doesn't mean the bugs, she means him. And he's like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to take the compliment. Thank you. And she's like, so would you kill me? And he's like, (laughs) not answering that question. Yeah. And then we literally watch the bugs fly off into the sunset. And John's like, you know what? It's actually really pretty now that we're not in pain anymore. Yeah, I can appreciate this now that it's not stabbing me and taking my form. And And it is a cool CGI shot. Yeah. And that's the end of the episode. Yep, the episode ends with Ben Browder's ass and not Claudia Black's ass because she's very conspicuously holding her hands in front of it. That's weird. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's a shot of them from behind. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Now, I'm sure you're all very sick of hearing me talk about asses, so we should get on to our segments. So our first segment is a distant part of the universe, which is what's the best world-building thing for you in this episode? 
Honestly, the establishment of the whole Sebastian Heat thing, I don't know if it came up earlier. It has not come up earlier, and it will definitely come up again. Yeah, it felt like it was laying the groundwork for a lot of things, and it did draw attention to the fact that even though she looks like John, she's not. She's an alien. I I do like the little biological things. Oh. Uh, what about you? What, what struck you as alien in this episode? Well, so my favorite world-building thing in this episode is actually the Dentic. No, yeah. Because it's so, it's so visceral. It only, like I said, comes up in this episode, but I, it's something every Farscape person if, will know what a dentic is if you say it. Mm. It makes sense that such a thing would exist, but is so different from anything that we would conceivably do. So I, I really like that as a piece of world building. Our second segment is Strange Alien Creatures. I mean, it had to be the monarch right yeah we don't get any clear shots of it but the bits we do really like it's it's very alien it's i i guess a lot of aliens borrow from insects because if you look at insects they look alien up close they don't look like anything in our world even though they very much are and it was borrowing very heavily from insects but it looks something it looked like something foreign Yeah, and depending on which angle we were looking at and which shot we were looking at, like sometimes it looked like a wasp, sometimes it looked like you could see a lot of uh, arms coming out of it. It, uh, Yeah, that that was the mind as well. There was a big sense of horrifying otherness. Yes, definitely. It was was a really well-composed shot, too. It was was a really well-done scene, scenes, the two scenes we got with her. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last thing is just looking for a way home, which is what really struck a chord with you this episode. I'd have to say all of Aaron's one-on-one scenes, especially her one with Pilot, but also her ones with John. The fact that this is Aaron at basically the weakest we've seen her up to this point, and sort of her wrestling with the fact that her dynamics are changing and that she's not going to be able to go back. Yeah, we really did need to see Aaron vulnerable for her to be incorporated into the group. And yeah, mine... My favorite scene, my looking for a way home scene, was Aaron with Pilot as well. Definitely. So. I think that'll about do it. Yeah, next week's episode is going to be Throne for a Loss. Is it Throne like? Like what you sit on? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the description is, when a group of Tavleks come aboard for trade negotiations, Rigel takes a vitally important crystal from Moya to make himself appear wealthy. The Tavleks kidnap Rigel to hold for ransom. I hate those damn Tavleks. Yeah. I don't know. The Tavleks are interesting. It's That's an interesting race. One of my favorite lines from the whole show is spoken by a Tavlek. Hmm. Do they come back after this episode? They do. All right. So make sure to join us next week. Welcome to the Uncharted Territories is partially listener supported. If you want to be one of those supporters, you should head over to our website, www.welcometotelevision.net, and click on our Patreon link. We'd like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Sam, Cassidy, Alex, Alicia, Ryan, Maracruz, Rosa, Javier, and Benjamin. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you could always rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. If you want to talk to us about this episode, or any episode, or any television at all, you should join our Facebook group, Welcome to Television. We can also be contacted at I Love TV Zines on Twitter, or at I Love Television Zines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this has been Welcome to the Uncharted Territories. 